Welcome to the podcast of Ideas. In mid-October at the Barbican in central London, we hosted the 14th of our annual Battle of Ideas festivals, bigger and with a more diverse range of topics than ever before. The festival hosted 450 speakers on over 100 panels, attracting an audience of about 3,500 people across the weekend, all keen to explore, understand and debate the important issues of our day. We covered everything from human nature to the financial crisis, debates about gender and social housing, to discussions about the future of politics in today's new world of constant upheaval. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be uploading audio and video from these discussions. So watch out for new posts on this podcast and on our YouTube channel. Last week, we posted a discussion about narcissism, the new politics of identity entitled Me, Me, Me. This week, let's take to the skies with a debate about the complications and exciting problems thrown up by new technology. The session was titled Drones, Will They Ever Take Off? It's introduced and chaired by Tamandra Harkness, who is a journalist, writer and broadcaster. You may have heard her on Radio 4, and she's also the author of Big Data, Does Size Matter? Speakers include Dr. Owen Macquarie, who is a senior research officer with responsibility for drone-related research at Liverpool John Moores University. He's also a member of the UK government's Drone Industry Action Group. Dr. Sophie Robinson, who is a flight physicist and a lead engineer at Copter Group AG. Alistair Muir, the safety director at NATS and the chair of the UN International Civil Aviation Organization. And Donald Clark, EdTech entrepreneur and CEO of Wildfire. Special thanks to NATS, the main air navigation service provider in the United Kingdom, who sponsored this session. Thanks for the uh, intro. I'm going to start by answering the the title of the session, which is Will Drones Take Off? Yes, is the answer, really. Um, They already have. They are used widely. Um, The session blurb itself already has a whole load of things in. They're used in agriculture, they're used for search and rescue, they're used for anti-boaching, drones for good, Africa type thing. Um, They're used for all sorts of things, and they have been for a number of years now. However, I do think we've reached a bit of a plateau in what we're doing with them. If you talk to the industry, a lot of people say it's because of the regulations. There's regulations and they're a problem. Um, Yeah, sort of the case, maybe. Um, I would say that the regulations we have today are good and fit for purpose. There's, yeah, there's there's an open question there, actually. But um, for the most part, no, they're, they're kind of fit for purpose, but they limit us to operating drones fairly close to the pilot. So you get your drone, you take off, You fly it a few hundred metres away, take some pretty pictures, do some agriculture, do some search and rescue, whatever it is you're going to do with it, and then bring it back and land it again. That's assuming you're a responsible operator. Um, I'm sure the Nats will have an opinion on um, the irresponsible operators. I'm not going to say too much about that. Responsible drone operators, limited to this operating within the bubble of what they call visual line of sight. So you've got the controls, you can see the drone, you fly it within that range because then you've got reasonable assurance of the safety of the the, the operation that you're doing. There's been a lot of studies in recent years, though, looking at what is the market for drones. So when you say, will drones take off, it's not, will they literally leave the ground? It's, are they going to be this amazing thing that does amazing things for, for, for all of us? And lots of reports on sort of the economic benefits, potential economic benefits and all these sorts of things. But in order to realise all of those, we need to move beyond where we currently are with the technology. Um, so when I said before regulations are fit for purpose. They're fit for purpose with the technology that we have today. You can't take one of these drones and fly it really, really far away for all kinds of reasons because you might never see it again. 
And if you don't see it, well, where's it gone? Who's it crashed into? What's it done while it's been beyond your vision? A lot of the reasons behind that are that, well, okay, this is my opinion as to a lot of the reasons behind this, is that drones have kind of grown up out of the technology. So you've got, everyone's got smartphones. They've all got all the sensors in your smartphone that know where you are in the world. That's exactly what drones are based off. They've developed out the fact that they are now technically possible. So companies have jumped on that and said, oh, we'll make these things and everyone will love them and they'll be great. They haven't really come from aviation as a starting point. They've come from, we've got this cool technology. Oh, look, we can make it fly. Isn't that great? Everyone will buy it. Everyone wants one. Everyone wants to take pictures from the air because that's great. Well, yeah, and that is fine if you're doing this little bubble of visual line of sight operation, keeping the drone close. Another thing I should say on the, the regulations that we have today is you're actually not allowed to fly over groups of people, really, either, unless you've got there, okay, and it's a small group, etc. But a lot of people want to do that with drones. Um, I was at a big event in uh, Liverpool recently. You might have seen the, the giants, the big mechanical giants walking around the city. We were in there, massive crowd of people, well over a 1,000 people, and someone took a little drone off and flew it over the crowd. Completely illegal to do that. I'm sure they got some really amazing shots, but it's completely illegal. So the regulations are there to protect people, but if people don't stick to them, that's, that's, their, own, that's their own issue. So how do we realise then the potential benefit for drones more widely? So how do we get beyond this visual line of sight restriction if the technology is kind of not really there at the moment? Well, my own kind of interest and angle on that is really about relying less on the human being who's piloting the drone to have all of the knowledge and all of the understanding about the regulations and the safety and everything and actually put a lot of that burden onto the aircraft itself. So make the aircraft a bit cleverer. You don't necessarily need full AI and all of this really clever stuff. I'm sure that would be amazing to have, but you don't necessarily need it. You just need a little bit more intelligence on the aircraft itself. And it's not just a matter of having that intelligence. It's a matter of them being able to say, okay, can we prove before we start selling these things and before we start giving them to, let's just say, Amazon to deliver parcels to people? Yeah, before we give these drones out to everybody who would want to fly them everywhere all the time, can we prove that that extra intelligence that we put on board is going to keep them safe? Is going to make sure that they don't fly into the path of manned aircraft, which is going to be a big problem for NATS is going to make sure that they don't crash into crowds. They're going to know if they're going to have a fault or a failure and they go and ditch somewhere where it's potentially a bit safer to do so. They're going to have all of this kind of intelligence built in. Because as soon as we can do that, as soon as we can say, right, we've got this extra intelligence on the aircraft now and we can prove to a reasonable level, and how you define that, again, that's an open debate, but we can prove to a reasonable level that they're always going to perform within certain bounds of safety then actually you don't need to keep them within the line of a human operator anymore because it's not going to be reliant on a human being to make decisions about is it safe to fly over that way, is it safe to go over here, can I safely fly over that road without causing hazards to people on the ground because the aircraft can make those decisions and then we can really, really push to sort of long-range operations and these kind of things. That all sounds great, I think, but it's not necessarily a trivial thing to do. One of the things that doesn't get talked about a lot, I'm sure got a huge amount of experience on the panel here and people will probably know a lot of these things that I'm talking about on the, on the panel but one of the things that doesn't get talked about a lot is how does a drone know where it is in order that it can make all of these clever decisions so if a drone's going to say if you can if you can prove that a drone's not going to fly over an airport well how does it know where it is in the first place and the answer is for the most part 
It's using GPS systems. It's using the satellites we have above us that tell your phone where you are um, and tell your car where you are and where you want to go and all of these sorts of things. And tell a lot of manned aircraft where they are and where they need to go. The thing is, in a manned aircraft, if you're flying along and your GPS suddenly packs up for whatever reason, you've got a person in the aircraft. He can look out the window and say, oh, yeah, that's a fine. I'm, I know where I am. Um, I can keep flying. If your drone suddenly doesn't know where it is and it's beyond the vision, it's beyond where a human pilot can see, what happens next? How can it safely say that it's not flying near airports or it's not flying into a crowd of people or whatever because it doesn't know where it is? And I, I bring this point up a lot and people say, oh, it's fine, but GPS always works. GPS is great. GPS, just your you phone, it always tells you where you are. I'm sure you've all seen people driving down railway tracks and things because their GPS told them to turn left and it was a railway track, not a road, that kind of thing. But more worryingly than that, for about an hour's worth of Googling, you can figure out how to build a little device that can jam GPS signals. Or not even just jam them, but selectively tell something that thinks it's in one location that it's actually in another location. There's something that came out recently. I can't remember which city it was. It's a city in Russia... Um, maybe Moscow, maybe St. Petersburg, um, that isn't actually where it says it is on the GPS. If you're driving around there with GPS in your car, your GPS in your car will tell you you're in a field 20 miles away because they have this kind of selective blocking of GPS deployed citywide for security purposes and all sorts of things. But if Amazon get their way or Domino's get their way and there's hundreds of thousands of drones flying over everyone's heads all the time, there's going to be people who don't necessarily like that. And we'll go on the internet and watch a YouTube video on how you build a GPS jamming thing. And then what happens? Because all these drones don't know where they are anymore. So I'm going to kind of end there with a sort of... Drones are great. And I really see that moving forward to this more autonomous, longer-range operation, there's a huge number of benefits we can see from that. But it's kind of a twofold thing of, is that necessarily safe at the moment? Do we, do we just want people to just start doing that and then see what happens? Um, or do we want a bit more rigorous proof before we go that route? And also, do people actually want that? Do you want your pizza delivered by drone? Is that something you would pay extra for? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, do you want your do you want your Amazon do you want your neighbours Amazon parcels delivered by drone constantly, even if it means that they're constantly buzzing over your house, etc., etc.? Is it actually is there actually an appetite for this? And that's kind of an open question that I want. So, Dr. Robinson, what light can you share? One of the major problems and the reasons that we don't have drones yet is integrating them into the airspace that we've got already. So uh, in our last session where we talked about the future of flying, we talked about the way the UK airspace is organised at the moment. Um, we are reaching capacity. So where are we going to put all of these extra drones? And you know, how is that going to work? Do drones need their own kind of special drone airports? Or can they go in normal airports with the rest of... Um, the rest of the normal aviation traffic. It was kind of tricky, or at least it, from my experience, it's kind of tricky to coordinate helicopters and fixed-wing airplanes. Never mind helicopters, fixed-wing airplanes, and drones. How are we going to solve that problem? It's quite a big issue. I think my other kind of real interest in this technology as well is from a social point of view. Again, in our last session about the future of flying, which drones are a massive part of, we discussed the difference between... So the normal way that technology changes is through evolution. So small steps 
and eventually we make changes we want to. Introducing Jones is going to be quite a revolutionary thing, and that's not how we're used to doing things. It's going to be a massive change. So what are the implications of that? And I mean, I'm basically, I want to live in the world that people like in the 1950s imagined the future was going to be like. You know, I want my jetpack. I want a drone to come to my house to pick me up in the morning to take me to work. I really want us to get there. And the technology certainly exists now. It's just whether people are going to be willing to use it. And I asked the question again in the last session, but I'll ask it again now. We already have the technology available for autonomous aircraft. So if I said to you, the next time you get on a plane to go on holiday, there isn't going to be a pilot in the cockpit. Would you still get on the plane? You can go to Amazon and you can buy a drone and go and fly it without any training, any nothing. You can just go and do it. And you can't go and just get a car and go and drive it around on the road. That's not allowed. So should people be allowed to just go and buy drones without any training and put them into the air? Because you can do some serious damage with drones. So it, again, it's another kind of social thing. Should we be regulating even more to make sure that these things are operated safely? I don't know. So, Alistair. Okay. Well, um, I can start from the same place as colleagues started saying that you know the title of this are they flying? Well, the good news is they're already up there. They're already there. Um, and if we think about drones as just being the little things you buy off Amazon, then I think we're mm. going to miss the miss okay. the miss the piece here because. That is where they started. They started off with the kind of toy industry you could almost start. But now you can see the, the, the whole market growing. Um, the car you mentioned, um, Uber Elevate, I've already said 2019 for trials in three American cities. Um, they've got uh, first commercial so, so operation. So that will be passenger six seater, drones? Six-seater passenger drones that you can do via Uber. And uh, well, we can get the employment rules passed. That's another issue. But, um, but certainly, they they have got the intent for commercial operations by 2021. You've already got licences in Dubai for taxis. There, so they're with us today. We have remotely piloted aviation systems, as they're kind of called the RPAS name. Drones, the media kind of term for them. The RPAS is the formal name. So um, we certainly got the remotely remotely piloted aviation systems. That's the formal term. Look at that category and you go beyond your little drones. You go to you know, jet stream aircraft. You go to different types of aircraft, which are flying now. So this is the technology is there. The technology can be used and we shouldn't think that we're at the edge of technology to get this going. It's there. Unfortunately, the safety measures we have today um, are kind of showing us the, the impact, not the benefits. You know, we've had drones causing Gatwick Airport to be closed for 25 minutes, 20 minutes. We can see, you know, I get reports very regular of pilots reporting drones out there at window. We've had um, at some big airports, you know, actually now I think probably the first uh, drone pilot who has now been uh, caught by the police in the sense of flying his drone in the view of a, in, in, the, in the path of a landing aircraft to get a photograph not thinking about the safety of the 200 passengers that are on that aircraft. So, I mean, and that's really the bit where you get to. These drones can offer huge benefits to us, and we cannot miss that. And that's the thing. We're just scratching the surface. You know, taxis, we talked about delivery. Well, we've already got some incredible uh, different usages. We saw a student has created a um, defibrillator machine that's now part of a drone. 
So the actual the drone flies to the patient. So there's, there's a, you, know, you can think of all the benefits on that overnight. Is it met? So how do we make sure that we are enabling that? How do we ensure we're getting to that? How do we make sure that those this industry that we can can get there can give us some huge benefits, some that we haven't even started thinking of yet. But I'll kind of go back to the point of, do drones cause the, the safety issues? Actually, I think it's more the pilots that cause safety issues. The technology will go where the pilot tells it, whether the pilot's sitting in the cockpit or at remote points. The challenges to us to go beyond the visual line of sight to beyond line of sight, integrating that into controlled airspace and mixing it with not only other drones, but GA community. We've got commercial space coming, Space packs are still a bit back, back space packs, rocket packs are still a little bit away. Um, tomorrow's world would have said that was um, coming around the corner. Um, but um, we've got lots of different technologies that need to sit together. Um, as part of the previous debate, we require some airspace modernisation to, to enable some of that. That can't simply happen in itself. Um, but that said, we have got some amazing benefits to come. The drones themselves... Yes, education of the pilots can help us, but we're a good, we require a good safety culture within the pilots. That safety culture is something that we certainly work with intensely with our employees to make sure we have a very good safety culture. And human in the loop. You mentioned there about when you get to autonomous operations. I think that's a long way away. You've got to, at this moment in time, going back to whether it's a public opinion or whether it's a, a technological requirement because of the liability of the systems, the human has to be in the loop at some point, and you therefore need to make sure that if a drone is flying or is, is said it's going to fly from A to B on a path, that we make sure we know where it is on that path A to B, and it's flying the intended path. Because once it starts going outside of that intended path, for whatever reason, that's when you start getting into problems. Um, I, I spent a day at our farmer operations, which was already outside of controlled airspace, and you know you can see the pilots flying outside of controlled airspace. And it only takes a minor error with the, the, the technology, and it's a known error, and it suddenly goes into controlled airspace, and then we're into a whole different ballpark, and we need to start uh, taking action within controlled airspace to do that. So integration of unmanned and manned vehicles into our airspace is absolutely essential. Um, and it's something that actually, from a NAS perspective, we are very well rehearsed in doing. We've got the ability to see aircraft. We have to en enhance that technology. Um, but actually making sure that we can enable it. And this is with a big thing. Safety is not the barrier. Safety is the enabler. Um, and we shouldn't see it and use it as an excuse for doing this. It must be safe. It must be 100% clear. We need a safe operations for both the public who are not in the drone or the people who are on the, in the drone and for the travelling public in whatever vehicle, commercial, whatever. So we must have that. That means a known environment. Know where the aircraft is, know where it's going. And having that platform for that intention, integrating that, that's the way forward and finding that. Regulations and, and making sure that they are there to drive the right behaviours, but regulation should be there to drive behaviours. Once we start depending on regulation to give us the, the aspect, then that can be tricky. We've had many regulations. We need them. We need regulations which complement what we're trying to do, but we need to make sure that the, uh, the, the whole environment is safe, is known, and that we can then make sure that the, the whole of our airspace in the UK maintains a safety for all travelling public. And we can do it. The technology is there. It's going to get down to the safety culture and the intention the responsible behaviours of all. And going back to what you said there about catching the irresponsible ones, 
Well, you know what? There's always going to be somebody there, so you can't plan for ever to be responsible. You have to make sure you can understand those who are going to be irresponsible, what they're going to do, and make sure you've built in the safety so you can catch that as quickly as possible. And that's going back to that known environment, know where they're flying, know where they want to fly, and then monitor their, their routes on that basis. And I think, you know, safety, um, I would expect a Scotsman to say that safety doesn't come for free. Um, <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it's, there's, there's a cost to it. And it was a previous um, safety director, actually, in that, who said that, well, if you think safety is expensive, just think about the cost of an accident. Um, and that's um, cost in the widest, not just financial cost. People cost everything that can happen from an accident. So that's what we're going. I would equally say that, you know, we shouldn't get caught up in thinking it's all about delivery. I can also think a £5 pizza and you get a £1,000 drone thrown in. That's a, that's a, that's a big uh, Maybe that's just my thinking, but um, it says more about me than delivery. But, um, you know, this is the key thing for me. We've got to enable it. This technology is happening. It's good technology. It can really enable some fantastic ways, which we haven't even thought of yet. But we need to build in safety now um, and not think about it later. It's an easy business case to make. Excellent. Good. That's been more upbeat. That's what I like to hear. So, finally, Donald, tell us about, uh, well, tell us what, what have you like about drones, but I'm quite excited about your drones for good. First of all, I'd like to pop us out of the Eurocentric bubble for a minute, because I don't think the drones industry, I think it has hit a plateau and will not recover. There's a real basic problem in physics with uh, public transport through drones and its noise. Elon Musk said this recently. They, uh, they're basically helicopters. They will be. They have to be big to carry the sort of payloads we're talking about. And that was it's just far too noisy. Nobody would ever put up with that in an urban environment. But let me talk about my experience over several years now, because I'm really an entrepreneur and investor. And I like niche technology, the technology that nobody else is looking at. And uh, in Addis Ababa, some years ago, I came across a drone project and got fascinated by this stuff. I'm literally just back from Rwanda. And Rwanda, some of you may know, went through a horrific genocide where one million people were killed by machetes in less than six weeks. So in 1994, this is recent, and it's a, it's a country that is still traumatized by a horrific experience. And if you go there, you will find yourself sobbing uncontrollably in the Genocide Museum. It's a tragedy. On the other hand, it's one of the most amazing countries on the planet at the moment because this country has recovered. The population come out once a week to clean up the streets voluntarily. They have community meetings. The reconciliation process is amazing. But it's also become iconic for its drone projects. And let me tell you, I don't really give a toss about delivering pizzas, to be honest, but I do care about world-class problems in healthcare, in food production, in energy, in wildlife preservation. And drones are flying and will fly in Africa. So the, the most iconic project, of course, is Zipline, which if you're involved in drones, everybody's heard of. It's actually an American company. But let me explain what they do. When the rainy season comes, you can go nowhere. The roads are just terrible, you know. And there's a big problem here because Rwanda is a malarial country, red zone malaria. And uh, if you want blood, either on a woman who's got postpartum hemorrhaging uh, on a cesarean section or childbirth, or a kid is bleeding out with severe malaria, they will die. And they do die in their thousands. If you have, and blood is a terribly difficult thing to store in Africa because of the temperature. 
If you have a central storage mechanism and get it out to people quickly enough, you save lives by the dozen. And this is happening as we speak every single day in Rwanda. Uh, and these are completely autonomous, by the way. The autonomy really is here in drones. So these things are fixed-wing drones to give them the, uh, you know, the, the advantage of going on a roughly a 100-mile round trip. They carry blood. They drop it by parachute into the hospital and return back where there's a big uh, A-frame wire that hooks onto the tail and they bring it back down again. It, it's absolutely amazing, absolutely astounding. We're talking about thousands and thousands of delivery of blood trips, uh, saving real lives. Okay. Now, that's not the only example in healthcare because it's also delivering uh, medicines out to those hospitals as well. And they've got coverage in half the country and they're just about to get coverage in the other half. And the reason they can do this, of course, is they don't have lots of private jets and helicopters <laughs> in Rwanda. Nigeria is different. You know there are no more commercially private-owned jets than commercial jets in Nigeria. It's because they're an incredibly rich elite there. Let me give you another example in Ethiopia. and that's the. This is more research, I have to say, but it's Tetsi fly release. So te the Tetsi fly in 30-odd countries in Africa kills thousands and thousands of people. It's a real menace and plague. And they have been taking deliveries uh, within the drone of sterilized male Tetsi flies, and dropping them in so that the population collapses and so on. And the, the early trials have been quite successful in this. Very simple idea. In other words, if you really apply your imagination to this drone technology, you can do wonderful, wonderful things on the ground. There's also been organ delivery. University of Coruña in Spain have been looking at as well. But it goes much further. Let's, let's stick to healthcare for a moment. You have, there have been real kids picked up in the Mediterranean uh, by re, uh, you know, refugees by drones coming off the ships, saving lives, straight off. Just last week in this country, there was a rapist caught because a drone caught him. Okay? This is real-life stuff. Coast Guards, disaster relief, supplies, another thing. Uh, there are plenty of people involved in the delivery of medicines when things go wrong. Okay? Are they flying? Damn right they're flying. They really are saving lives. There are even weird things like spotting sharks off Australian coasts <laughs> to, to prevent people getting chewed up when they go surfing. You know, when you get disasters like nuclear radiation in Japan, of course, the obvious solution is to send drones in to see what's happening there. And even in this country, you can see the advantage of Manchester Fire Brigade, who will send a drone in over a burning building because it's much wider view than just the visible spectrum. You can see hot spots and therefore potential dangers for the firemen saving their lives as well. So that's all in the health area. That's the big one for me. That's the area that is receiving investment and will fly in the developing world. The second one is agriculture. So that's delivering payloads. The second one is imaging. And Rwanda's a subsistence farming economy and a population. You know the average age in Africa? The median age is 19 the population will double by 2050, and they have to be fed. Now, Africa is a bountiful place. It has four harvests a year in Rwanda, but they're still struggling. And the problems are pests, irrigation, and poor use of fertilizer. So currently, there's a company in Kigali, capital of Rwanda, called Karis, wholly owned Rwandan company, employing young people, uh, many who were, uh, you know, whose parents were killed in the genocide. And, of course, it's just straightforward imaging, which really helps, really, really does help increase yield. And that's the main problem in that particular country. 
Uh, we even have the possibility of using drones to solve the pollination crisis. You know, you can imagine this insect drone thing, but I think that's a bit far-fetched. It's more like, a, you know, a paper in a journal rather than reality, but certainly crop mapping, crop health, and so on is another one. And then beyond that, we have energy. Everybody in uh, Rwanda has a little mobile phone. It's a $10 Chinese phone, and every single one of them has a little torch on the top of it. Whenever you, you know, and it's got a torch because there's no light in the villages. It's also got a radio because Africans love music. And so they want the local radio station, and they're all local radio stations. So, you know, once you get the culture of this thing right, you can see uh, uh, how energy itself is important, electricity is important. So we have in Haiti, for example, we had an example there where the energy company were not only looking at the power lines. If you've ever been in Africa, you know things grow like crazy. And whenever you lay a, a low-level power line, it's overgrown by vegetation of one form or another, literally within days sometimes. So spotting that, cleaning it up, and even when you have disasters, we have the good examples in Haiti was four drones actually picking up the lines and repairing them. You have drones that can tie knots and lines and so on. So I think we've got some interesting applications in energy. And I'll end on this last one because I, I like this one. That's wildlife conservation. So I've been to Africa a lot. Again, one of these sort of life-enhancing moments. I went up uh, to meet gorillas up halfway up a volcano, which was a real slog for me at my age, believe me. I got there, and it was absolutely astounding. Although, I did get a good old clout by a gorilla, which was unplanned. But, uh, so, but it was an amazing encounter. One of the great things about Rwanda is it cost me $1,500. And damn right, it should have cost me that, because that money goes to the local farmers who have to be moved out because it's a successful project. The gorilla population is growing, but they need to move the farms away from the edge of the forest so the forest creeps forward again. So they're using that money to pay the farmers to move. This is all good. Paul Kagame is a real leader, real beacon in Africa. But if we're going to solve that problem in Africa, and this is a real commercial problem, you know, if you're going to have tourism, because that's what they will need to solve this problem, if you're going to go and see elephants in the future, then you better make sure there are some elephants for you to see. But the bottom line in wildlife conservation, it's not just in Africa with elephants, it's tigers in India, there's an orangutan drone project in Sumatra, there's even the, the drone visiting of the whale cull in the Faroe Islands and so on. So I think there's an enormous amount that drones bring to that problem as well. Now these are existential problems. These are really important problems. I don't give a toss about delivering a book, a pizza or Burger King to anybody in London by drone. It ain't going to happen. Uh, anyway, <laughs> for all sorts of reasons, basic physics, I think, is the big one. But I am really keen to use this technology in places that matter. You know, although I'm, you know, I'd be accused by many people as being a straightforward capitalist here, that's why I'm, I'm an investor. Uh, investors have heart, you know, and uh, I think we can do good things if we put our mind to it with this technology. Hopefully I've painted a picture of some of the opportunities there. But these are real things. These are really happening. I think it's an absolutely wondrous thing. Well, thank you. It was very inspiring. Disappointed as I am to hear you so down on me getting a self-flying car. Uh, I think you have very successfully widened the picture out. And it is very interesting the way you describe, much as a lot of Africa has leapfrogged our transition through landline telephones and internet and into mobiles, just going straight to mobile. It sounds as if they could leapfrog some of the road generation to go straight into flight. I mean, it, it, to some extent, I would say that might be deferring the problems that we have with a very full airspace because at some point, presumably, at least parts of Africa will become that developed. But hopefully 
there's a bit of time to solve those problems. So I, I feel a bit bad now to I kind of bring it back a little bit, maybe to some more mundane questions that the three of you raised. But I just did wanted to get a little little show of hands from the audience. I mean, you you threw up a few questions, uh, and I think we should actually just directly say who would be happy, who would be happy for their neighbour to get pizza delivered by drone. Okay, so a few people, but actually a bit a bit wary. Who would be happy to get into an aircraft with no pilot and fly abroad? <laughs> uh, more people. Now, this is very interesting. Maybe you're right about the noise on the drones. Okay, so okay, I'm going to come out to you guys. We have a good half hour left. Uh, very simple question. Does somebody of you know whether there is any insurance possibility for that? Because you said safety, safety. And the first question must be insurance for a car you must have. You must have it for a lot of things. Why not for a drone? Okay, insurance situation. Very good. Uh, I was just um, kind of, I'm, I come from an interest in autonomous vehicles, and I was just thinking, are we not looking at the dronification of everything? We've got high-powered electric motors, better batteries, software which can coordinate AI-enabled, even geofencing. I mean... Isn't the, the, the word drone just going to melt into the, the kind of transport descriptions of the future? So you mean the fact that they're airborne will be a detail? Yeah, yeah. Um, and also their, I think this fixation, this fixation on their, their, their form of delivery, um, I think is, a, I think it's, I, I must admit, I am entirely on the, the, the side of the contributing massive gimmick, not going to happen. Um, and actually where this is going is in uh, a kind of system and structure of autonomous vehicles flying in the sky rather than on the ground coordinated from a air traffic control near you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and uh, down here, and then we'll go back to that. Yeah, for instance, like um, a newly qualified drone pilot, right? somebody who has a, a PFCO, Permission for Commercial Operations, granted by the Civil Aviation Authority, um, it's still illegal for you to fly a drone within um, 50 metres of any road anywhere, right? doesn't matter how quiet the road is, etc., unless you block off the traffic. Yeah. Um, so that's, um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, it's a completely stultifying uh, regulation. You're not even talking about effectively keeping out of the wave of um, civil aviation or military aviation or any other kind of aviation, uh, which I'm 100% for because anybody in their right mind is going to back that. Right? But um, I think there's a, a problem of an issue of trust, right? um, trusting the people who, uh, even the people who are supposed to be qualified, who spent £4,000 upwards right, on uh, training up, paying for their drone, etc., etc. Right? Um, there's a problem in trust, uh, trusting people you know, to actually kind of be sort of, um, worthy of, of, sort of carrying out um, operations and um, expanding the commercial uh, capability of drones. There's an enormous capacity for, for drones to increase like that. But, you know, like, you know, from where we are now, we've got a, a very long way to go, I think. It's been spoken, like, security and safety has been sort of spoken a bit. But what about, like, the malicious use of drones? So say 
in Japan, there was uh, radioactive sand dropped on a building in the Middle East or like Syria. An entire convoy was destroyed by drones which had been rigged with explosives. You know, if we start using these drones more in society, how can we actually stop this sort of use? Or say they get jammed and then just crash, or you just have a grenade attached to one, fly it, and this sort of terrorism can, you know, be really well. It's invisible almost. You're just, you know, just an explosion comes out of nowhere. Yeah, how would that be? dealt with in the future, do you think? I like that we've escalated only four <laughs> questions from uh, how are you going to insure them to what happens when a terrorist drops a bomb out of the sky with a drone? Uh, I will come back to you. What I'm going to do is let the panel uh, come back and, and give us your thoughts. Don't all feel you have to answer all of them, but just to recap, there was the question about what's the insurance situation, uh, the question of aren't we basically, we've got self-driving vehicles, aren't we inevitably going to go into... Man after my own heart, in fact, that we're going to get a self-flying cars. Because I've always said this, that two advantages of self-flying cars over self-driving, one is that you've got three dimensions in which to miss each other, and the other one is there's no cyclists and pedestrians out there. <laughs> Far fewer things to hit. <laughs> you also fall um, from the sky. You can fall from the yeah, sky. The only thing about that. What, about when, what about when jetpacks arrive? And Sophie in a jetpack, yeah. obviously. Yeah, but apart from <laughs> flying that, pedestrians. But, but I think the, the, the other two, these are the two big questions. Well, what about the regulation? On the one hand, do we have regulation that is possibly not fully enforced, but the regulation that we have, will that not stop us doing some of the useful uh, and important things that drones could do? But on the other hand, how do we make it safe and how do we keep trusting drone pilots if we have looser regulations and what what do we do about deliberate malicious use of them uh, and and actually i mean to throw in something else apart from physical attacks i think one problem nobody's raised i'm a bit surprised with is privacy because drones with cameras on uh mean that the the ability we all now have with smartphones to constantly film and video each other is now airborne and uh, and the possibility of looking into people's windows and gardens and intruding on the Drone porn is a thing. Is <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely is. <laughs> oh, God. How drunk am I going to have to be before I Google that? It's all too much. Okay, so on that note, panel, who, who would like to chip in on what? On, the, the, the question at the back, board. the most important ethical issue of all was the question you asked here, which is actually not, I mean, ISIS has been using drones for, for a long time now. The big issue is military drones. So people like, in my, my field in artificial intelligence, people like Stuart Russell, who wrote with Peter Norvig, the, the most famous uh, textbook on the subject, made a very famous video that's all over YouTube. Uh, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen it, you know, people under 20. 25 10 to have, showing the real dangers associated with swarm drones and small drones and dropping uh, payloads. But a bigger issue is actually about 75% of the market in drones, from investment point of view, is in the military. That's where all the big money is. And believe me, we have no idea what these people are up to. Mm -hmm. But we know already that the first autonomous drones, the Israelis have, been draw, uh, have an autonomous bomb stroke drone, which basically goes to an enormous height. It's basically a huge 500-pound uh, bomb, and then just plunges onto the top of a radar station, self-destructing in the process. It's completely autonomous. You send it on the mission, that's it. This is incredibly dangerous, which is why many, many senior people in the AI community are signing serious documents and refusing to work with various ministries of defense 
around the world, which is why uh, a whole bunch of employees in Google said, no, we will not allow TensorFlow, which is an open source area of AI, to be used by the military because it was being used for wide area image recognition in uh, Reapers. So, I mean, this is happening every day of the week. There are civilians dying as we speak from people in this country and in America who come into work at 9 o'clock in the morning and kill people for a living. And I'm not totally against this because it has the sense that there is a sense, there's an argument that it has precision, that it actually saves lives as opposed to traditional forms of warfare. It's a complex, it's a really complex moral debate here, but it's a debate that has to be had. And we're not hearing enough about this. You know, the delivery of pizzas is one thing, killing civilians is another. And this is happening as we are sitting in this room. You know, are drones flying? Yeah, they're flying and they're killing. They're saving lives, as I said, but they're also killing people. There's also, just to follow on from that, the kind of the psychological com um, consequences of using drones. For, so for the people that do this job, the yes, maybe it's better for, in terms of precision and accuracy, but actually the consequences of coming to work nine to five, sitting in a shipping container somewhere on a, a, a military base and doing essentially what is playing a video game is having a toll on these people when they kind of realize, you know, I've spent my career killing people, which maybe if you sign up to the military, that's kind of what you sign up for. But that's a different debate, I think. The unforeseen consequences of using this technology, which that's probably one. Can I get to the point of um, what you're saying there about the military? I completely agree with everything that both, both of you have just said on that. What you were saying about um, the sort of the more kind of terrorist applications of drones, anyone just buying something from Amazon and sticking explosives and things on it. The, the, the one protection I'd say we've got there is that it's quite hard to get explosives. You could put explosives on anything. Um, and getting hold of them is very tightly regulated and all these sorts of things. But I completely see the point of just... Yeah, just crashing a drone into things is, is not great, and anyone can do it at the moment. What we are starting to see at a number of um, big events now um, is actually anti-drone technology coming in, where there's a whole load of startups that came about a few years ago where basically coming in with big radio jamming equipment and things like this and radio detecting equipment. So if someone spots a drone, it'll, it'll point to it automatically potentially the, the, if you believe all their marketing anyway they can identify where the operator is and you can send the police to them and all of this I've, I've never seen any of that myself but the, the, this technology is is there for that exact thing if you've got a big music festival you don't want people flying drones into the crowd bringing that technology online is is, is really useful I'll just sort of quick fire answer a few of the other uh, points that were raised insurance if you're a commercial operator at the moment there are insurance requirements um, that you, you have to be insured in order to operate. Also, potentially one of the things that is going to either hold back or drive the industry is to how much risk the insurers are willing to take. In, in the, the less regulated environments, it's less of an issue. Where there's more stuff to hit, where it's higher risk, it becomes a bit more of a problem. And actually related to that is the exact point that, that uh, the gentleman at the front raised regarding the current regulations and the, the PFCO process and all of this. And it does come down to trust. The reason you can't fly near roads as a trusted commercial operator, a licensed commercial operator, is because there isn't that safety culture, exactly what, uh, what Alistair was talking about earlier, within the drone operating community. Um, it always reminds me of, uh, in, in more the manned aviation side of things, people have been building aircraft in their sheds for years and getting in them and flying themselves, which I just think is 
insane. But anyway, people do that. <laughs> yes, for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> but for a long time, the people who did that and the, the licensing process they went through for their aircraft, they weren't allowed to fly over cities. They weren't allowed to fly over built-up areas. They had to stay away from things because the regulators weren't convinced that those things were safe. You're allowed to fly them, fine, but you just stay away from people that you might hurt. In recent years, a lot of those self-built aircraft now you can fly them over cities because there has been that culture of, okay, we had an incident, a plane broke, a plane crashed, whatever, but we learned from it. Everyone's on the same page. Everyone is very open in terms of the, the safety side of things and say, okay, we're going to learn from this and we're going to move on. At the moment, because the drone industry hasn't grown out of aviation, it's grown out of toys, mm. we don't have that. And that's where we need to get to in order to facilitate that, that next level of the commercial operation in the complex environments. It's interesting there was a, a, an example, you know, that surveillance thing. In China, where they have really serious exams, which everybody sits at the same time, mm-hmm. they're using drones to check whether radio signals are coming in from the outside. These yeah. kids are really smart. They've got suits on, little invisible earpieces. <laughs> They've got pens with cameras in them, feeding the questions out, getting the answers fed back in. So they were placing drones above the exam centres to see whether uh, to check on any signals coming in and out. You can always rely on China to get you out can indeed. the surveillance. I think the insurance side, I agree. I think that's going to get down to if you're on a business, you've got a liability. And if you're running an operations, then I'm sure the insurance companies will, will have to see a market mm-hmm. and, and then they'll respond to that market like any other insurance business. So I think that's a commercially driven requirement that will become, well, it is a requirement already, actually, if you're commercial from insurance. I think that's there. I think the definition of the drone is an interesting one. Because that is where it's already changed from a drone was traditionally seen as your, your standard flying, flying toy. It has now already changed definition of any remotely piloted air, ground or marine vehicle. So that, now that drone definition has got wider. And it's really important. We don't just think that's just a change of definition. It's not. It's a really change of we now need to think in the future way beyond what we were thinking. So there's no point in building what we think we need today because by tomorrow it's already out of date. We need to be thinking about 10 years ahead and thinking what we need for that future and make sure we're building it. And I would be obviously saying safe now and safe for the future. You know, that's going to be there. Regulation-wise, well, regulation's built around segregation. It's not built around integration at the moment because there is no model that says it's safe to bring them together. So that's why we need to make sure we've got some, a new safety framework. And that's you know, what we're looking at from our point of view of our safety management system. We have a safety management system for our corporate, our commercial operations, um, for the actually uh, controlled airspace. But we'll have a new safety framework for integration of these types of these types of vehicles because you can't use the same arguments. And based, you know, regulation works fully around the risk. What's the risk, and therefore can you mitigate that risk? If you can show you can mitigate and you've proven it. Well, then the regulation changes. So we shouldn't use regulation as a barrier. Actually, I'm, you know, regulating without regulation is always the, 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 what we should be aiming for. You know, it's actually you just do it because it's the right thing to do. But you have to have some consequence to make sure people do it. So I think that, that it's all based on segregation at the moment. And that's where we need to move to integration. The security risk then, well, actually, there's no different. I know there's, there's the um, almost the moral and ethical use of what these can do, and as you said, all the dreadful things that people are thinking they can use them. But is that different to what we talked about with a jet engine and something that allowed a jet engine aircraft to be used to propel these things, you know, bad things further and do even worse, have worse consequences? That will always exist no matter what technology. Somebody will find a way to exploit it for the wrong reason and for the wrong defence. So I think 
that's that that will be a natural one. We should be working through all the different organisations and you know United Nations, all these aspects put in. Hopefully, keep them talking. They're, they're not doing, they're not building. Is the kind of thing with United Nations. But the key thing about that security thing is knowing where things are. You know, it's all very well we've talked about technology that can detect them and once well it can see them once it knows what it is it can propel a net or put up some you know radio blocking of their signals that make it fall. You've got to know what it is first of all before you do that. And that's where, from our perspective, we must have a known environment for the whole of the UK for any vehicle. Going back to the definition of drone, it doesn't matter where it is. We need to know what it is to make sure we've got a safe environment. Once we know what it is, whether it's where it shouldn't be, we can make it safe and make the other traffic move around it. We don't want to do that because that then has commercial impact, has safety impacts. We won't. We can always make it very safe by saying nothing flies. That kind of goes against our customer's requirement to have a business. So we, we, we've got to make sure it's safe, we can run it as low as reasonably possible, all the risks. But know what it is and you can do something about it. Now, that gets down to who's going to pay to put on board a little gadget that allows us to see what it is. The GA community, so this is the general aviation community, they've had that for years and they still don't want to put these on board. Um, and yet I sat in Farnborough and watched them and some of them were, you know, I'll be honest, running a bit close to the, uh, to the cloth between sitting in front of a 747 and just running, going to a, a, a breakfast on Isle of Wight. Um, it's a, you've got to be quite, you require responsible people, but we need ways to detect them when they're not wanted to be detected. And that gets back to security. That's the same as we have today. You know, we have radar systems in the UK, some of them which we have, some of the military have, allows us to see aircraft, even if they haven't got the electronic box working, um, just to call it primary radar. That's an essential component. It allows you to see people that don't want to be seen because, you know, military, the enemy don't tend to turn on a transponder and say, I'm coming towards you. So we need to be able to see them. It's no different to security, but we need to build it now. And that's the key bit. And then on top of that, modernise airspace to make sure it's right. It's, it's no one, there's no one silver bullet to this one, that's the thing. It is a spectrum of things that we need to do now. One of the things for me is that the general public who are flying kind of, if we're still talking about small drones, are not very aviation aware. So a good example of this, um, there was a video that was going around on pretty much all the social media sites, and it's a video shot from a drone of an A380 taking off from one of the big airports somewhere. I can't quite remember which one. And this video is, it's an awesome video. It's really cool. Um, however, as someone who is aviation aware, I saw it and thought that looks really dangerous and what a stupid place to put your drone literally meters away from an aircraft with, I'm not an, enough of an aviation nerd to know how many people you can get in an A380. It's a lot. However, the comments underneath it, there were two, three hundred comments, several thousand likes of video, and almost all of these comments were like, wow, this is so cool, this is so great. So you then see that, maybe other people will go out and go, I want to make a video that's better than this, it's going to be closer. You know, people generally aren't aware how dangerous it is to do something like that. And maybe to get back to this point of regulating without regulating, people need to be more aviation aware in order to stop these kind of things happening. I will also just, again, your point on kind of how do you stop terrorists using drones to drop bombs on you? I think with any technology, any incremental advance or any you know, leap, 
overwhelmingly it will be used for good, but there will always be people who will use it for evil. It's like the internet. You know, overwhelmingly the majority of the impact of the internet has been positive. The entire world is now at your fingertips. And there's a big debate there about, okay, so we know that this can do a lot of good for the case of drones or for the case of any technology, but should we restrict it and regulate it because some people will use it for bad purposes? And I think maybe not, because I'd like to still think that humans are good fundamentally. We're all good people. Okay, we have a few minutes left, so um, I will take any other thoughts or questions from the audience and then give the panel a, a couple of minutes each to give us their final thoughts. So, Essentially, it's slightly devil's advocate. Uh, you know, we've got cars, uh, we've got roads. Uh, roads, as well as letting people drive around, go on holidays, you know, ambulances can go on a much better road system than they would if we didn't have all the other cars. We get all their food transported, blah, blah, blah. But still, I think it's 1,500 people get killed a year. Uh, in the UK, and that's been dropping an awful lot. You know, assuming with Owen's future, you you didn't have people manually flying them; they're all automatic. Uh, drones were so beneficial; it's worth having the equivalent of half a million bags of sugar flying through the air, or something like that. Does is any, does the panel think there's an acceptable number of accidents you can have? Because I think, uh, Alice, you mentioned 100% safety, and I'm thinking if something is beneficial. In, in a lot of ways, you can't have 100% safety. So does a panel believe you can, you should have 100% safety or if it's possible or if it's actually going to kill any benefits that do potentially come out of drones, assuming there are benefits? Provocative. I, I, obviously, you couldn't possibly fly 100 bags of sugar around because the obesity crisis. <laughs> <laughs> so, so definitely wouldn't be allowed to do that. No, but just, just take a general point. Uh, is there anybody else who wanted to, to say anything or ask anything? It's sort of to do with the sky as well, but drones in general and society, um, to do with agriculture. And how... Um, so what I see um, in the news is where I'm saying, you know, you've got ageing populations, you have... You know, uh, lots. You need lots of workers to come in and do these sorts of uh, agricultural jobs. Uh, do you guys see there being there being able to be almost a completely autonomous sort of drone-based farm, you know, where you just have everything just going and 24 hours picking, packing, uh, fer- you know, fertilizer, uh, pesticides, these sorts of things? Like, do you see there at some point in the future where you can have a completely yeah, drone-based farm. Completely automated farm. Yeah, pretty drone. much. Yeah. Good, good question. So just to come to this point about risk and acceptable death rates and things, um, the fundamental thing that underpins that is that as humans, we misinterpret the level of risk. Yes, aviation is a risky, in, is intrinsically risky, because when you're up there, if you come down unexpectedly, it's not going to end well for you. You... It's maybe the perception of risk in aviation. You know, we perceive it as being much riskier than it actually is. You know, getting in a car is quite risky. Crossing the road is quite risky. But you cross the road every day without thinking about it. So maybe there needs to be a bit of a societal shift in how we understand risk so that drones can be accepted in that, in their role, shall we say, that I would say. Um, in terms of the fully AI farm, jobs um, being completely replaced by drones, from a technological perspective, there's no reason that that couldn't happen. 
again, I think there needs to be a societal shift if you or there would need to be a societal shift because at the moment in society, we're all expected to have a job, work nine to five. That's how you generate value in society. We need to maybe move to a different model uh, in order for those things to happen. And whether that would be a good thing or not, I don't know. Yeah, I can go back to the how, how safe is safe question. That's the one which is the, the, the continual there. I think um, safety is all about reliability. Um, and anybody that tries to tell you that they're going to sell you a product that's 100% reliable, I wouldn't buy it from them because I don't think I suspect they've got some problems that they don't know about. Um, you, you've always got to work on the basis of safety is about showing that you've managed the risk down to as low as reasonably a, a possible, possible point. So that, you know, that's, that's just the whole focus, to get down to say you have the risks, you've managed them. But then going back to, and this is where the safety culture comes in, because how do we make sure we become safer? Well, we learn. And, and, and we have to learn from, unfortunately, from failures. Um, and therefore, we need a culture of people to report that they've had a failure. And this is where regulation comes into it, because if the regulation is penal, then actually they won't report they've had a failure because they get the license taken away. So this just culture we talk about, the cycle, you have to have people in an environment that they will report what's gone wrong and the basis they'll be treated fairly and we can learn and we can make it safer. And then we're always working to that as low as reasonably practical um, point. So that safe is safe. Um, and that goes back down to how quickly will then will this these industry take over and start taking jobs over. I don't know take jobs over, it'll shift the focus of where the job's done from. Um, because I'm you know, a firm believer you'll still require a human in the loop somewhere to even monitor where it says it's going to do X and it's done Y. Well, why is it done it differently? And you know, AI will come in and help us with these aspects in the future, absolutely, and it will help us learn each time that something different happens. But at some point, something Murphy's Law comes and plays and it will fail. Um, it's not, you know, we never work on the basis of something will never fail. We always make an assumption it will fail and we're ready for it and we'll pick it up and we'll do something different to keep it safe. Safety, keeping it safe, actually the ESB says every aircraft comes down and we don't let anything fly. It goes back to the days of when we had the uh, volcanic ash day. That's a bit of a Macbeth day for us, we don't really mention that too much. But, um, <laughs> it, that's the day we you know the airspace was closed. Nowadays, actually, we've learned from that, and actually, the airspace will, would not be closed now today because of the safety. Because we'd have flying hoovers. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Drones sucking up the volcanic ash. Yes, exactly. So that's the bit we've got, and that's the bit where I would say that the safety, you know, safety is a continual thing. It's not a one off activity, um, and we need it for this industry. Full stop. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, I'll just kind of continue on from that point, really, on the how safe is safe. That aviation isn't 100% safe, and they have a target to keep getting safer. But the interesting thing about that is the target that they kind of look at is around, effectively, how many people are you going to kill? Worst case, per flying hour. But with, with manned aircraft, that's a relatively easy thing to say, because you say, okay, worst case, plane crashes, that plane had 100 people on board, therefore 100 people, worst case are going to be killed. So you can say, okay, we, can, we need to have this many flights before that happens. With drones, it's a bit harder to say. Because, okay, a drone falls out of the sky. How often is that actually going to hurt anybody? It might be, yeah, it might inconvenience people. If it comes down on a road, okay, you could say that could cause a car accident. It equally might not. It might just close the road for a couple of hours and inconvenience people and cost financially, but you're not going to kill somebody. So it, when we try and get to this, how safe is safe, 
in manned aviation, partly because of the 100-odd year history of lots of planes crashing and learning from that, but we have this, this target of we, we want to go this many flight hours without an incident, and we constantly want to make that number bigger. But with drones, we don't really know yet. Because if we just suddenly say, okay, everyone, fly the drones everywhere you want, I don't think actually that many people are going to get hurt. A lot of people are going to be very annoyed, but <laughs> not that many people are going to get hurt. But until we can start to understand, well, how many is not many, and these, these kind of questions, we, we can't really, really answer that. On the farm thing, that's already here. A modern dairy farm will have cows that are chipped. They will come in on a, an algorithm-driven feeding process. They will be milked by a robot. It needs one person. That person could be in Australia, to be honest, manning the thing. Large, so dairy farming already. A arable farming, we're already using drones and have been for years on crop spraying. You can see and tractors are centimetre controlled, fully autonomous. So that's already here. The, the second issue around, this is a really, a, quite an in, interesting issue. I have a, you know, I just don't see this happening in Europe. Technology is always ahead of the sociology, which is always ahead of the regulation. And technology is always like that. But it's quite odd in the drone world, because it really is miles ahead of the regulation. And I think in Europe in particular, given the European ferocious <laughs> nature of the EU, especially, and other regulatory bodies here. They will regulate this out of existence. You'll get trivial applications of drones, I think, like crop spraying. Pretty low-level stuff. That's why I'll say puncture this European bur bubble, the idea that they're going to have drones ferrying people around in taxis in London. Think of the third world. And it's not that you don't have regulation there. There's a Rwandan Civil Aviation Authority. They will tell you that you can't fly above 300 feet and so on and so forth. But they have less problems, well, they have bigger problems to solve than the, the sort of first world problems that we've been discussing, perhaps. So I'll go back to my premise. You know, if you've got money to spend, spend it in the third world on drones and not in the fanciful projects, uh, helicopter taxis. Uh, so now, please thank the excellent panel. Uh, for their conclusions <laughs> and fly free through the Barbican. <laughs>